Hi, this is Carrie Mitchum. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond with your host, Stephen Brittingham. Enjoy the show. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. Hi, friends and listeners. This is host Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. My special guest today is Jacob Young, an actor who brings so much to his scenes with his skill and talent. This is evident by winning a Daytime Emmy Award in 2002 while on General Hospital as Lucky Spencer. His contributions to daytime television are enormous. It all began back in 1997, when Jacob first arrived on The Bold and the Beautiful at the age of 17. He was portraying Eric Forrester Jr., often called Rick. It did not end there, for Jacob also gave a memorable performance on ABC's All My Children as J.R. Chandler, and eventually returning back to the role of Rick on Bold and Beautiful in 2011. What you've done with this company so far as CEO is very impressive. Thanks, Dad. I'm sure you've been keeping abreast of the numbers. Yes, I'm well-versed. I mean, Mm -hmm. profits are up in every market. I think it's safe to say Forrester's on a roll. Because of your hard work, all of it. It's definitely a team effort. It all starts at the top, with you. And you've managed to bring more respectability to our family. To the Forrester's and the Logans, two great legacies. Your father and I both are more than satisfied with how you're handling everything. You filled these shoes pretty well, and seamlessly. Yeah, there's been a few bumps along the way. Everybody has challenges, everybody makes mistakes. The important thing is that you land on your feet, keep your head up. Like I said, I'm very proud, son. I just want to be the son you always hoped I'd be. You are. Yeah, I could be better. I want to learn from you. There's no greater teacher for a man than his father. Music is also a big part of Jacob's artistry in life. Let me tell you, I am really enjoying the discovery of his music. And I am looking forward to learning more about it and what he has to say. There is so much to discuss, including his move from Los Angeles to Utah. And I must add, he has a beautiful-looking family as well. Jacob Young, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, my friend. Thank you for having me on the show, Stephen. It's my pleasure. It is so nice to have you here. 
I am really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about your adventures on daytime television. Uh, first, though, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I mean, all things considered with the, you know, the current climate of what's happening in, in the world and the United States, um, you know, we're, we're kind of tucked away here in a mountainside in, in Utah. And, you know, we have been quarantining and doing the things that we were you know, supposed to be doing. I know things have been starting to open up and, um, but uh, just, just, you know, just trying to observe the, the protocol that we're supposed to be doing. Well, I tell you what, um, it's been a challenging year for all of us, but I'm glad to hear that you and family are all doing well. And you must have a, a beautiful uh, scenery where you are. Yeah, I cannot complain. It's it's probably one of the most <laughs> beautiful places uh, that I've ever been, and which is why we decided to make the move. Very understandable. Well, Jacob, if you don't mind, how about we start at the very beginning? I would really enjoy learning where you are from. Yeah, so I grew up uh, half of my childhood in Oregon, on the north coast of Oregon, in a town called Tillamook. And if people are familiar with Tillamook, they, it's because they make a famous cheddar cheese along with a multitude of different dairy products and ice creams and uh, so I, I grew up there and I, I would work on the local dairy farms and milk cows and, oh wow, um, you know, nothing, nothing was too easy, you know, for me growing up. Um, we came from pretty humble upbringings. And so I worked, I started working at the age of 15. So my work ethic kicked in really early. I was working at a gas station and then uh, on dairy farms and you know, basically took care of my, uh, my own school clothes and as soon as I could and my own insurance and vehicle and so we always was very independent uh, from the very beginning. And it was a nice way to grow up, but not a lot of industry, uh, especially the industry that I went into, it was not really that prevalent in Oregon. That is very impressive. You were uh, you know, taking care of things that you needed all on your own or additional things that you needed uh, that showed a lot of responsibility on your part, a hard work ethic, and I'm sure that remained intact with you over the years. So I really admire that. I am curious, though, that sounds like you were very busy a lot of the time, you know, working and, and other activities, but what did you like to do if you had some free time for fun while you were growing up? Well, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed sports, uh, but what was, what was the uh, strange things for a lot of my teammates that I, I was working, you know, I, I did sports with when I was a wrestler and played football, baseball, but um, I was always actively involved in uh, choir and musical theater. So anytime I, I could get the opportunity to be in one of the shows at the high school level, I was constantly um, doing that. And of course, without being slightly ridiculed by the jocks, but, um, <laughs> but I, but I, I really enjoyed that. That was that, you know, that was a calling uh, early on. I mean, I never thought in a million years that it would become a professional uh, career of mine. And look what's happened, <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, <laughs> since you started that. And Hey, I get the whole jock thing and doing theater because I also did theater in high school. It was my first exposure to acting, and I kind of, I know exactly what you're implying there. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's a wonderful experience. Well, that's very interesting. So how about we fast forward? How did the opportunity arrive for you 
to portray Rick Forrester on The Bold and the Beautiful. Is there a story behind the audition by chance? Anything interesting in particular? Oh, yeah. There is an interesting story. I I was just finishing my senior year of high school, and um, I I had moved from Oregon to to California. My mom had moved first, and then I had followed her down there uh, once she got settled. And uh, I decided, because uh, I, I was held back my first grade year, we had moved a lot. And so I had fallen behind in, uh, in my studies in school. So, uh, you know, I, I was held back, but my, I had great grades. So I ended up completing my junior and senior year together, catching back up to where I was actually supposed to be. And, um, and I really didn't have many ties with friends there in, in Northern North County, San Diego. I just had a few friends that I had met from moving. So it wasn't like I was missing out on graduating with a senior class. So I, I ended up completing that. But while I was doing that, I was going to a private school. And while I was doing that, I was working full time after school at Denny's. And I was, you know, you know, paying my tuition for this private school. And my mom, you know, was always my biggest advocate. And she always was trying to influence me to take theater and do some more theater, maybe a community theater. And she had this like big idea that maybe Aaron Spelling was going to come into Denny's or something like that. And, and (laughs) scoop me up and put me on a TV show. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if the other restaurants were booked that he might stop by Denny's. (laughs) If if Denny's was a five-star restaurant. (laughs) Uh, so, but it wasn't, but two weeks later, actually somebody who managed, um, a lot of models and some actors, uh, and he was a photographer had, had come in and he had saw me and thought that I had a good look. And, you know, I, of course I was skeptical at first, but he said, why don't we just do some photos and see, you know, what I'm talking about. So we did some photos. It turned out fantastic. And so I started submitting to agencies that summer up in, uh, in Los Angeles. And, uh, lo and behold, I, 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 I got a, a commercial agent initially and an, actually one of the biggest young adult children's commercial agency, which still is there in Los Angeles called commercial, sorry, commercials unlimited, um, owned by two very lovely ladies that have been in the business for years and years. And after signing on, uh, there was a, a publication that is, that was a spinoff from the variety magazine, which is a, entertainment tab or entertainment sort of uh newspaper rag that, that talks about everything that's going on in the industry and there was another spinoff called variety junior it doesn't exist anymore but most agents were asked if they would want to take out a full page ad and showcase you know 20 to 30 of their talent through headshots and of course the the call letters of the agency on top and Lo and behold, uh, the bold and the beautiful saw the casting director, Christy Dooley, who still works there, saw that photo. And I got called in on this audition. Now, this was pretty coveted role, considering it was Eric Forrester and, and Brooke Logan's son. And they had already done a nationwide search. And they've been really trying to find a lot of you know, different talent. And I think they had already seen over a thousand some, some uh, actors, young actors. So I went in. I auditioned. Uh, they immediately told me I'm going to have a call back. I would have to come back the next day. And they wanted me to audition with the girl who was going to play my co-star, Adrian France. Um, so, of course, I was very nervous and I was very green, especially when the auditioning system, you know, I've never had auditioned in, really in a room other than a couple commercial auditions. 
So they had all the producers in there. They had all the associate producers and supervising producers along with Brad Bell and uh, the casting directors. And then, of course, Adrienne France. So she um, was Mr. Bell there. Bill Bell. Uh, Bill Bell Sr. was not in the room. He was not. Then. Okay. No. I was just curious about but, that. But Brad was. But there. he was still. But Bill was, you know, he was still working over at Y&R at that time. Yeah, uh, he was still writing Young and the Restless. But um, so, so we auditioned, and you know, they, they because I was very green and very nervous. After the audition, they basically split me like a a piece of paper that had a acting coach on it, and wanted me to do some coaching lessons with Adrian France Amber on the show, and so we worked on these scenes. And they also were like, well, Adrian wants, you know, she's a singer and we know that you have some singing abilities as well. Would you be willing to do a duet with her as far as your screen test is concerned? So after your screen test, do, do the, the song. So they chose the song. So they chose, I've got you babe by Sonny and Cher. So oh, it worked wow. out to be, a, so we worked <laughs> on that. We worked on the scenes. And then of course the scene needed, I needed to be shirtless. <laughs> so oh, I see just to compile extra pressure on me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just yeah. another layer to deal with. Oh my. And wow. so finally, uh, lo and behold, the screen test came around. And after the screen test, maybe a day later, they had told me that I had booked the role. And wow. they liked the fact that I was greens because then they could really train me in, in daytime television. Daytime is a very unique medium because of multiple reasons. It moves very fast. One, two, uh, you have to really know your mark all the time. And we're working with three to four cameras. And so you always have to know where your camera is. So it's a, not only is it a lot of dialogue and a lot of acting that goes along, there's a lot of technical aspects to it too. So starting with somebody who's fresh, who's not jaded by going, you know, working in the film medium with one camera or, uh, you know, maybe even comedy, it's, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was a good proposition for them. And so they started to train me in that medium. And six months later, I was nominated for an Emmy. So it, it, it really kind of happened, you know, pretty fast. Well, there most certainly was a story about your audition. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing that in, in such vivid detail. Wow, that, that is incredible to me. And you know what is standing out of my mind is they must have really seen something special in you, Jacob, because obviously if they, were, if they said to you, hey, we would like you to see this acting coach, but also with Adrian, I mean, that kind of says to me that, that they saw some potential in you and, and that must've been very exciting for you. It, it was. And, and it, what was even more interesting is my mom had been watching the show for years at that point. So oh, it, nice. I don't know who was more excited was it my mom <laughs> or was me, but it was, it was, it was definitely nice to get that recognition early on. And, um, you know, still was a, a fish out of water and, and really a lot to absorb. Well, Jacob, let me ask you then, when you think back to your first, let's just say first few weeks of filming, maybe your first month, I mean, was there a time when you felt like you were kind of in the groove where you were like, okay, I think I'm getting this now. I mean, how long did that take for you being so green to the whole filming experience on a daytime program? It, it took a while. Um, I, it, I mean, it, I would say it was about three months three months, you know, I had to, I had to learn all the characters, all the sub stories, everything that had happened in the past on top of, you know, having just gobs of dialogue 
And I had never had to memorize quite that much so fast, being, you know, going from one day to the next. Um, but back in those days, it was different than daytime today. We would literally come in seven o'clock in the morning. We'd all go meet in a rehearsal room. And all the cast members that were in that particular show would meet in that room with the director. We'd do a complete read through. We'd get all of our blocking there that we to write in our scripts. And then we would break for lunch. You know, after lunch, get makeup, hair, get dressed, you know, and go out to set when, when it was your time. And we were only, excuse me, just doing um, one show a day at that point. And we would always pretty much be done, you know, from six o'clock to eight o'clock. So it was about six to eight hours. And that was it. But now the show, Bold and the Beautiful, they shoot eight episodes in four days because of budgetary cuts. Of course, you know, ratings are, have a lot to do with that. Multiple different digital networks and, you know, lots of different television that was out there. I mean, when I first started, I believe there was 12 soap operas that were still on the air. And, and now there's only four. Well, you're right. That's, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a different time back then with so many options. You know, ABC, CBS, NBC, they, you know, they had, you know, three or four shows on. And, and it was a different time then, no doubt about it. And, and like you said, there's just now, you know, a handful remaining. It's interesting to me, Jacob, um, when I think that the two remaining CBS shows are both Bell Productions, and I, you know, if Mr. Bell Sr. would be aware of that, I'm sure that that would be something that uh, he would have been very proud of and pleased of. Oh, I think so. I have to tell you, um, you know, I had the honor of meeting him and talking with him many, many times at his house. I mean, back in the day, we used to, they always, he would always throw a really lavish Christmas party at his house. Up in, I heard about uh, those, actually. <laughs> they, they sounded nice. beautiful. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, it, you know, the, the views and the Picassos and the Rembrandts and just, I mean, for a young kid like myself, walking into this world was just, insane but he was the nicest sweetest guy uh, and was never like conceited about his work in fact one of the the best notes he ever gave anybody because you know there's always this constant give and take on soap operas because the writing is being done just as quick as we're trying to get the stuff done so it's as fast as we're filming it rather and you know we're always trying to make things work and sometimes it just doesn't work the dialogue and sometimes people would be like, you know, they, they say things, you know, and it just gets caught on the boom anyway. And everybody hears it's like, I just, I don't know what to do. I can't make this work. He came out and he said, look, you know, my dialogue is not the gift to all dialogue. He's like, just as long as you're connecting with it emotionally, say what you want to say. And, and so he was always very generous that way. And, and just a lovely, lovely man. Thank you for sharing your memories of Mr. Bell senior. I'm not surprised to hear any of that. And Jacob, I don't mind sharing with you that one of the things that I admired about Mr. Bell and that I find unique about him is that I always thought of him as a master storyteller. He seemed to be a man with such a big imagination when it came to his writing. I think he loved his and cherished his characters. And I had a feeling that his mind was probably working all the time. <laughs> 
even when he was off the set, <laughs> about what he could do with various characters. And I really enjoyed listening to that story. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I just to add to that, I mean, you know, he truly was the pioneer in, in, in daytime television, you know, starting in Chicago uh, with uh, uh, The Guiding Light and, you know, moving on and selling that off to Procter Gamble and as the world turns, writing all those shows. And, you know, it, there's no wonder why the two Bell shows still exist. It just comes from such a, a great legacy, and and he was, he was the original pioneer, no doubt about it. Very well said, and I must add also that his vision as an artist, you know, the close up camera work, the orchestra style music that could pull the heartstrings or make it very intense, you know, all of that high production quality values. I've always respected and admired that. Uh, about his vision yeah he was he was a mastermind for sure he, and and i'm just happy to see that those shows are still continuing uh his legacy well you know jacob i'm i'm thinking about adrian and i have to tell you i just enjoyed her so much as that character on the bold and the beautiful and the young and the restless <laughs> when she crossed over and you know what i really like about her is i just find all of her scenes interesting she always grabs my attention Beautiful gal, too. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you didn't mind at the time working with someone as as lovely as her, <laughs> but I bet she kept you on your toes with how talented she was. Oh, yeah. She kept, keeps everybody on her toes. You know, and there's not, other than scenarios, there's not a lot of difference between Adrian France and Amber. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> as, far as, as far as the, um, not the devious side, right. just in her charisma, her charisma and the sparkle that she has in her eye. She's just like that, you know, if you were talking to her right now, face to face, or as when she was on screen, she was, she's, really, uh, she's really a lovely, lovely human being. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with her. And we're still friends to this very day. Well, I tell you what, Jacob, I I really enjoyed your a character on The Bold and the Beautiful. You know, those early years, I think of very fondly. I, I just found Rick very adventurous, and he's kind of trying to find his own way. And, of course, he had feelings for Amber, and, and it, it, was a, it was a fun time for me when you first arrived on The Bold and the Beautiful. I'm thinking of a triangle, though, that I really enjoyed as well, and I thought I would bring up, and that is between your character, Amber, and the character of Kimberly Fairchild, uh, Ashley Tesoro. I really enjoyed uh, her character as well. The total opposite of Amber <laughs> in many ways from a character. But what was that like working with her? Oh, great. I mean, she was, she's so sweet. Um, and, you know, she was, she was very young when she started. I think she was maybe 16. And uh, she was, you know, she had already done several things. She had already had several credits. But, you know, a, a totally, totally, like you said, completely opposite of the character of Adrian France. And um, she was very, you know, uh, deputantish and very, you know, had a very sweetness about her. Um, and it was fun. It was fun. I, you know, it makes me think of, you know, I did my very first song that I'd ever cut professionally. They, they, had, they had me perform it and they did a video on the show. It's pretty hard to find. I've looked for it, but, but it still exists out there. And she was in that and it was all in black and white and beautiful. And we were up in the Pasadena gardens and then we were also down in Zuma beach and they shot 
it all over Los Angeles. And it was really a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I think that's probably my most fond memory working with her. That sounds wonderful. I'll have to try to track that down myself. And, and once again, uh, thank you for sharing some memories from those early years. Well, I thought before we would move on to General Hospital, I, I would like to go ahead and ask you now, the two individuals who portrayed your parents, Catherine Kelly Lane and John McCook, I, I mean, I tell you what, uh, you know, Catherine and John were on from the very beginning and and uh, just incredible actors. And uh, I'm constantly amazed at what each can do. I just want to know what it was like uh, working with them, especially at that time. They are some of the most giving, most generous, wonderful people that I've I've ever met in my life. Um, you know, Catherine is is absolutely uh, sweet, sweet, and you know you can hear about um, some women in the industry being divas. Uh, she is the farthest thing from that, um, and you know really like a mother figure in so many ways. And John immediately, you know, he was you know he welcoming me into his dressing room. We would talk for hours, really like father and son. He had three kids at the time and, you know, they're, they're now grown, but, you know, he treated me just as if I was his son and we would talk and, you know, um, you know, back in those days he would smoke cigarettes and <laughs> people would still smoke in dressing rooms from time to time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it was just, you know, very, very casual, very laid back. It felt very old Hollywood and he's very reminiscent of old Hollywood. You can see that when he acts and uh, his, yes. you know, his posture and his stance and how he, uh, you know, portrays a scene. So, you know, and he's, I, I'm still in touch with him all the time and his beautiful yeah. wife. Uh, we're, we're, we're all still great friends and I'm thankful for that. And that, that's, you know, that, that really is a testament to their, their character in real life. Yes. And of course, Catherine just amazes me the depth, the depths that she can go to in her scenes. I mean, she, she's so talented. And you know, John, that was so well said. Thank you, Jacob. I think of him as a true professional. And you know, he's kind of like the Mr. Abbott of the Bold and the Beautiful, just like what Jerry Douglas was to Y&R. You know, you know uh, Eric Forrester is, is, is that kind of character for the Bold and the Beautiful. I would like to just say, personally, Jacob, I always thought you and John had... Um, very in, uh, appealing chemistry together as father and son. Thank you. Yeah, it's again, it's a testament to my relationship with him. And you know, it, as you start to grow on these shows and these storylines are kind of moving left and right, you realize, you know, just like in real life, that your character doesn't interact with everybody exactly the same way, right? You know, sometimes sure. you have issues with one character. Um, and as many issues as he had with his father for him, always feeling that he was not good enough or not, you know, not uh, able to run the company like Rick saw himself doing. Uh, it, it made for a very interesting dichotomy. There was a love hate relationship. I use the word hate very lightly, but a love hate relationship because he always saw much so much more in Ridge and, uh, you know, and he resented him for that. Well, I'll bring up another example of that later on when we discuss your return to The Bold and the Beautiful. There's a certain storyline where two major things were occurring, and that was one of them. Um, I, I would like to say now, though, that I, that I think 
what impresses me about you, Jacob, is is that you portrayed those complexities in such an interesting and captivating way. I felt as a viewer how you were t- the character was torn on the inside, like you said, the, the love and the hate, and 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 I think a lot of resentment, deep rooted resentment, and I think as an actor, you kept that going for years so well even when rick was doing well let's say and happier it could still come out in unexpected moments and i just have to tip my hat off to you it's one of the things i admire about your performance the most is the complexities um that i just described thank you thank you well you're most welcome and one more thing about john i heard i hear he has quite the sense of humor (laughs) yeah yeah john is John is infectious. He's uh, everything he does is always a little funny bit. Uh, if it's there's this horn that sits on the desk, and he does the same jokes over and over again. There's like <laughs> twenty of them that's in his repertoire that he does. But but like there's this horn, and I'm sure you've seen it sitting on the the Forrester desk. But it's like every single time we're in the office, he picks it up. He's like, "Hello." <laughs> he answers it, and like he acts like he's like talking to somebody, oh. you know, that he's like, "Oh, you know." I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And he does this, like he does another handkerchief bit where he <laughs> yeah. grabs it and it, it can't, it doesn't come off of his finger. It's stuck to his finger. It's just, you know, it, it's the same old stuff, but <laughs> yeah. it, it gets me every time. And it gets everybody every time. That's great. That's great. Well, um, if we move to general hospital and you would win an Emmy award for this. So I know it's been many years, but, Congratulations to you on that accomplishment. Very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. You know, when you went to General Hospital, and and now you're playing the the son of 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 two very well known characters all over again, Anthony Geary and Jeannie Francis. And I have so much admiration for Jeannie's talents as an actress. I remember her performance on North and South so well. I just thought she was so good in it. But what was that experience like portraying their son? Well, I mean, it was, it was a very overwhelming uh, feeling initially um, because the network wanted to recast Lucky Spencer. Jonathan Jackson had left the role and any actor who's ever had to replace another actor and try to convince the fans know how difficult that is. It's a very difficult transition to do. And both Jeannie and Tony Geary didn't want the character replaced. Eventually the network said, well, you're going to have to deal with that. But Tony spoke up and he said, well, if we are going to recast, I want to be able to choose who it is. And so, uh, lo and behold, I had done the audition with Mark Teschner, who's still their casting director. And Wendy Rich was the executive producer at the time. And she had told me after the first audition, she said, well, you know, after I saw your performance uh, from Bold and the Beautiful at the daytime Emmys, I knew that we, we were ever going to replace Jonathan Jackson. You know, we, we were interested in you, but that wasn't the end of the process yet. They still wanted to do a screen test and there was seven different guys they were looking at. Uh, and most of them, you would know, like Greg Vaughn that eventually became lucky uh, or it was, yeah, lucky Spencer and uh, several other actors that, you know, had some notable careers. So, um, but the night before going in for the screen test, I was happen- happened to be 
in Hollywood on Franklin, where there's a little bunch of little restaurants, a famous place called Birds and La Poubelle. And um, I ran into Susan Flannery, Stephanie Forrester, and Ian Buchanan on the sidewalk. And they said, well, what have you been up to? Because it had been months since I was on Bold and the Beautiful. And I had said, well, in fact, I'm actually screen testing tomorrow for General Hospital. And she said, well, who are you screen testing with? I said, Tony Geary. She goes, well, you tell him I said hello. And she goes, I just absolutely adore Tony. So flash forward, I'm on the screen test. I'm the very first one to go up and I do the screen test with him. And I mentioned after the screen test, I said, Susan Flannery um, said hello and wanted me to tell you hello. And, uh, and he goes, oh, really? I absolutely love Susan. <laughs> so <laughs> after all the screen tests that night, he called Susan unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to the producers and asked her what she thought or she thought of me. And she said, Oh, I would hire him in a heartbeat. That was her exact words. And that's very nice. So lo and behold, I was cast as the, at the role as a role. Um, and I had, I think I had some scenes with Tony first. It was just me and him. And then Jeannie was added to the equation. Now, Jeannie was really distraught about the fact that somebody had replaced the character, and she actually was pretty vocal about it <laughs> and, and said that she wasn't going to work with me. Uh, and unfortunately, the, she, it was written that she had to come in to the scenes, and I had these massive monologues, and she wasn't making eye contact with me. Now, I'm not going to say, I'm not saying anything bad. This was just, you know, her feelings, and sure. she had expressed this to the network, and she felt like she was being undermined by the network. I see. Uh, not the first time this has happened in many different shows. Of course, this happened with all different kinds of actors. Uh, but, but uh, the the moment came. I was halfway through this monologue and I went up on my line, and she was like, "Oh, like that." And Tony goes, <laughs> "And it's no, it's no uh, secret they have sort of a tremendous uh, relationship." But he goes, he 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 goes, looks over and goes, "Oh, Jeannie, grow up," and she like. <laughs> basically berated him oh, and she my. storms off the set and i'm like literally almost in tears because i'm thinking i just made a mistake and it created this whole thing and i had no idea about any of this and tony grabs me by a little pills and he goes hey sometimes mom and dad fight oh, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and suddenly it struck a chord i was like oh okay i can use this i can use this as you know to my advantage as oh, an actor yes yes so eventually, you know, he pulls me aside after that day in his dressing room and he says, look, you know, Jeannie, she, you know, she has her feelings and, you know, that's what they are. But he's like, she's, you know, it, it, the next time you do a scene with her, try to find a place to drop a tear. She'll be yours forever. And so the next scene, I, I took that to heart and I found a place where I could get a little bit emotional and I, I, I cried and she embraced me. And then after that, Jeannie and I have been great friends ever since. So um it was just you know it's tricky it's tr tricky to replace a character yes a well-loved character it is you're right about that uh, as a viewer i've seen the difficulties that that can be and I, I know it has to be challenging for actors wow that that story i mean you you no doubt couldn't see any of that coming from a mile away could you i mean that had to catch no, you off guard i had <laughs> i had no idea about their history i was just a you know coming into this completely blind. Well, Jacob, I'm wondering, since I'm a 
Y&R and B&B viewer, although I made it a point to learn about the other programs. I just wanted to ask you, was there a specific storyline to help propel you to get the nomination and eventually the win for the Emmy? Is there a storyline that year that just stands out in your mind? Yeah, well, I mean, the the story that did was uh, a brainwashing um, by Helena Cassidyne. Connie Towers, who plays the role, still does play the role. Um, wonderful, wonderful lady. And that was the storyline. It was an interesting, diverse storyline where I was brainwashed. And that's how they brought me back to the show. And they really just produced the heck out of it. It was a really lovely lovely story it was really nice to work with uh constance i i eventually i i hired her in a, a live play reading of an agatha christie that i produced in beverly hills and, and she was so thankful to be re, you know reuniting with me and working with me but if it wasn't for her and that storyline um and of course uh rebecca herbst who played plays elizabeth and of course tony and Jeannie. It, it would never have been possible for the win. And, uh, you know, I thank them, you know, just as much uh, as the writing team and, uh, and the production quality. So that's, that story is the one that sticks out. And as far as choosing selections for the Emmys, are you in, uh, in control of that? Do you get to decide what you submit? Yeah. So, I mean, it changes a little bit year to year. Back in those days, you would choose two complete episodes. Um, and, and it's still that way, uh, but you, you choose two complete episodes. It's just how they vote on it has changed over nice. the years, but, um, but you get to choose the two shows. And then from there, you narrow it down. Like after, if you get the pre-nomination there, then you choose the one show. And then back in those days, then you would just submit the, the, the last clip that was the most powerful if you were nominated and then they would show that clip. Uh, but the voting has changed a lot. It's become very, um, unfortunately, it, it, there's just no easy way to say it, but it, it's, it's more of a popularity contest versus necessarily. So they, like the shows try to vote for all their, their own peers. They try not to vote for like, who is the best actor necessarily. Now, nice. granted, there are still some people that do that, but because there's so few shows left, it's just not the same anymore as the voting process. So, um, but back in those days, it was really difficult because it was there were still twelve shows on air, and yes. the categories were were just loaded. So much great story happening on all the different shows, and you're going up against every great story in that category. Well, if we go on to all my children, Pine Valley, I'm assuming this might have um, necessitated a move to the Big Apple, where all my children was filmed. And I have to ask you, Jacob, because it seems like you have very interesting starts to shows. Is there a story behind <laughs> your audition or start uh, for your yeah. uh, character on All My Children, who, by the way, is J.R. Chandler? Yeah, that's, um, so I had left General Hospital after finishing my three years and winning the Emmy and was looking to do some film and, you know, trying to get into prime time. And it just, you know, sometimes you have to wait a long time and in that time I was, you know, working a little bit. I did a 20th century Fox film called the girl next door. It was rather Fox searchlight. And I was approached by the producer who had was, was producing uh, poor Charles, Julie Carruthers. And she asked me if I'd be interested in coming in on all my children because she was going to become the executive producer in New York. 
So we had a meeting. We had a meeting about that. And, um, you know, we had a meeting, a nice, lovely lunch meeting at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. And, she, you know, we, we discussed. She said, there's two characters and you can choose. She said, you can play Michael Knight, uh, Tad's son, or you can play David Canary, Adam Chandler's son. And All My Children was definitely my mom's favorite show. So I watched growing up with her. Uh, David Canary transformed from Stuart Chandler to Adam Chandler. And honestly, when I was younger, I thought it was two different people playing the role because he was just so convincing. Um, and then I realized I could have that opportunity. So I decided that I wanted to choose uh, J.R. Chandler. Uh, but unbeknownst to me, they had already promised that role and he'd already screen tested before, before Julie officially came on. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, um, Justin Bruning, who played Jamie Martin. And Justin Bruning has gone on to do all sorts of different shows, uh, Grey's Anatomy, and I think he's in Marigolds now that's coming out or is out. Um, anyway, so I basically just pulled the rug out from under him and they said <laughs> one day they're like, oh, by the way, you're playing Jamie Martin now, and you're not playing J.R. Chandler. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> well. So, so we, we, we recently did an interview, and he was in it. It was for uh, Entertainment Tonight. Uh-huh. And he, he made sure to mention that in the <laughs> interview. So <laughs> I hear you. So that, so that was interesting. But, um, but you know, I, I mean, out of all the shows, I have to say All My Children was definitely my favorite just because it was a different atmosphere than any place I'd ever worked. Also, it was in New York, so people were a lot closer, you know, it's, you know just because everybody lived in the city, you know, in, in a, a city seven miles by 2.5, three miles or whatever it is. And, you know, we would go out to dinner after work, and we'd all go hang out, and we'd do things together, whereas Los Angeles, you know, it's, you know, you're in your car, you drive, so you live on the other side of the city. It's you know, you, I, I, the biggest thing, I think the difference between a Los Angeles, you know, a person lives in Los Angeles and somebody lives in New York. And I figured this out very quickly that in LA, if you say, Hey, let's meet up next week. Nobody's going to meet up next week. It just doesn't happen. It's pretty rare. <laughs> you know, oh, if you go, okay. Hey, let's go grab a dinner. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, whereas in New York, if you say you're going to meet up next week and you don't show up, they're sitting at the restaurant waiting for you, and they're going to call you. <laughs> Where are you, man? You uh, said you'd meet me next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, they just don't pull any punches, and I actually learned to really appreciate that about New York. I just really loved I – mean, I'd, I'd pull up to uh, have dinner at, a, at a, a bar or something, sitting at a restaurant, and next thing you know, I'm having a great conversation with somebody. And it was – you know, that, that, I really enjoyed that time in New York. It really sticks with me a lot. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. That that was just so much fun and interesting to listen to. You, you know, Jacob, I'll share with you. I don't know if you are aware, but I'm also an actor. So this ties into my next question for you. Um, sure. and that is, when I ever saw scenes of all my children, it kind of had this like theatrical element. Uh, what I mean is, it seems like an actor's actor show. Do you know what I mean? It just seemed like uh, yeah. all these... Uh, 
variety of characters and looks. I mean, don't get me wrong, lots of beautiful ladies on there, but there was also just a wide range of unique-looking individuals. I, I found that very interesting, and I'm just wondering, when you think of being on all three shows, what stands out in your mind that's different when it comes to filming? I mean, does one you know, a film maybe at, at a much quicker pace? Is one slower? Any thoughts on that when you look back on the three shows you have been a part of? Well, I mean, All My Children was the beginning of change happening a lot in daytime at that point. And we were, they were starting to tape two episodes a day. Um, and there was a definitely a, a faster pace. But you're right. It was definitely an actor's actor show. And that was, um, of course, because of the brilliant late Agnes Nixon. She truly knew how to tell a story. And it didn't, you know, she realized that a story didn't require all this eye candy. You need real people also on these shows, people with real chops that don't necessarily have that sort of fantasy look that Bold and the Beautiful or Young and the Restless has. Uh, they, you know, they really wanted to captivate their audience with the good storytelling. And I, I felt super compelled on, on, that, on that show specifically just because of how well it was written, um, the chances they allowed me to take, so uh, that was that was a really a, a, a great time. And, you know, one of the conditions before I moved to to New York with Julie Carruthers, uh, you know, at the helm, I said I wanted to make sure that if I was moving to New York, that I was going to be auditioning for Broadway and that if a Broadway show did arri- arise, that I would definitely want to be able to do that. And she had promised me that. And, uh, you know, a couple of years into my contract there, I booked Beauty and the Beast on Broadway as Lumiere and they didn't bat an eye instead of, you know, instead of like most shows, you know, which would try to hold you back because you're under contract. They just decided to work me a lot more on all my children (laughs) while I did eight eight shows a week on Broadway. So, uh, be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite challenging, but it was, it was a great challenge. I called it my actor's boot camp, going from, one medium to the next every single night. And that was, uh, that was a real thrill. Well, I'm glad you got to do that, Jacob. I mean, Jacob, I have to tell you, my, just, my respect for you was already high. It's just quadrupled. I mean, when I think of just how experienced you are, it's very, very impressive to me. Well, I have to ask you about this gentleman because anytime I've ever asked a guest about him, I always get the most amazing response or stories, uh, and that would be David Canary. And I just would like to give you this chance to, you know, it, it, let you share your thoughts on working with David. Yeah, I was incredibly close with David. It didn't take very long because learning from the masters like John McCook and and you know making sure you know, and I also I'm a little bit method. I'm a little bit. I, I use all different styles in my acting but i also wanted to really get to know him genuinely and so for the first month i was working with david i insisted on going with him and walking with him to his favorite bodega where he'd get this like really fancy salad from a salad bar oh nice and i would eat with i would eat with him every single day because i wanted to know literally everything about him plus i was a huge bonanza fan and so i you know, you know, knowing that I was working with candy was a big deal for me. And, and so, you know, we, we just spent a lot of time together, but the one thing I can say about David is he brought his a plus game every single episode. 
And if you blink, you fall behind. He was an adamant professional. I knew every time I was going to work with him that day, it was going to be some of the best things I'd ever play in my life. And he was generous. He was kind. He was sweet. He, he cared so much about everybody he was in a scene with. And he cared so much about the crowd to uh, a T. In fact, you know, we became so close um, with his wife, Mo, and, and his kids. Uh, I remember I invited them to my wedding with my wife. Well, it was my fiance at the time, of course. And, you know, we had a, um, you know, uh, a registry and they, it was online. So, you know, they could, people could, you know, choose or whatever they wanted to. He and Mo bought our entire China set, the entire thing. And that just tells you just how generous and wonderful he was. He, you know, I, I never anticipated him to be, you know, such a lovely human being and so kind and again, generous. He's, I miss him terribly. He was uh, a light of everybody's day. And, um, you know, I can still hear his laugh. Thank you for sharing that, Jacob. I tell you what, I, that just really warmed my heart. Um, and that was just wonderful to, to hear all of that. Thank you. If you don't mind me asking, I've had a, a, several people tell me how they would often hear him singing in his dressing room or down the hallway. Did that ever happen when you were working with him? Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he was, you know, he would, he would sing in his dressing room to warm up his vocals. Okay. And you know, he was, he, as a theater guy, he wasn't afraid yeah. to, to let it, let it belt out. And uh, he would, he would break into song while he was on set too. He, he was, he was just wonderful, wonderful human being. And uh, you know, he's, he's greatly missed. It's always, it's yes. always bittersweet. I'm always touched when I hear what folks have to say about him, and, and that ranks up there with one of my favorite responses. Thank you, Jacob. I, I was going to ask you about another gentleman. I'm not sure if you really interacted with him much on the show, and that would be John Callahan. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, you know, I didn't. My characters really didn't. You didn't cross paths. You know, sometimes paths. in these shows, don't cross paths, and he wasn't working quite as much when I came on. I see. And... And so I, you know, I, I knew him, always knew him to be very kind to people and, and always was, you know, quick to shake a hand and say hello and ask how you're doing. Uh, but other than that, you know, we just, we just really didn't because right as I was starting, he was sort of being phased out of the show. And, nice. um, but I did, I did grow up watching him and it is obviously very tragic, his passing. It sure was. I'll tell you when things like that happen, it just makes you take stock of things, doesn't it? And. And, it sure uh, does. Well, thank you for sharing that as well. Well, before I ask you about a wonderful lady, oh, wow. I really like this lady, Jacob. <laughs> and she was a guest <laughs> recently. You probably have an idea who I'm about to ask, uh, and that would be mm -hmm. about uh, Amanda Baker. But before I do, I just thought of a, a question about acting. When you were doing Broadway and working on the set, so you're switching gears. I have no doubt that you could switch gears as far as the character. But what about when you were describing uh, David warming up? You know, with the theater, your projection's different. When you're, like, filming in front of a camera, that can be different. When you first started that, did you have any difficulties with that? Or did you just kind of go about it smoothly, so to speak? The, the most difficult thing about this, you know, moving into that particular character on Broadway was the cumbersome costume. Oh, I see. Um, the costumes were designed 
the very first year, obviously, that it came out. And the only Tony that Beauty and the Beast had ever won was for costume design. Uh, oh, okay. and, um, and so because they had done that, they had never adjusted what the costumes were like. So um, every time they would make it for a particular individual who was coming in, there was only... I think there was only nine Lumiere's or something in the, the run of the, the 13 years of the show, or maybe less than that, maybe six, six of us, Gary Beach, of course, being the first one. And he, he, uh, he was nominated for the Tony for Lumiere, but didn't win, but he went on to win other Tonys later on, um, for the producers and, and whatnot. But, um, he, um, uh, the, the thing about this particular costume, I, I finally went in for my fitting and once I get in, you get into the costume, it's, it's fire retardant because you have butane packs that are on your, you know, that are built into the costume. You have gas lines that run down your hand and they use this sort of oh my. antique version of lighting, lighting them, the candle hands up, which was basically uh, a taser. But okay. basically they take a part of <laughs> a taser and it's, you know, it's an electricity current that would ensure that those hands would light up on cue. <laughs> oh, wow. And each hand, each hand is about six and a half pounds. <laughs> and you have to manually turn these, these levers on the inside on before you light them up. But you have to make sure that your hands are up when you do that. Otherwise, the gas will run out all over the ground, all over yourself. I see. And you can have, you can have gas <laughs> explosions, so to, so to speak. <laughs> Oh, and that doesn't make for a very good combination with a with a <laughs> a fully hairsprayed wig. Uh, <laughs> so yes. it, was, it, it was very very cumbersome. So after I'd already booked the role, the character in, in the show, I ended up putting this on, and I'm looking at the producer, and I'm like, I don't know if I can do this, and he's like, Oh, you're going to be fine, <laughs> and <laughs> because I had all the all the dances and all the training I had done separately with the, the, the lead dance instructor for the show. And of course I was only in dance shoes and jazz shoes and, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't wearing the costume in my, my dress rehearsal or the, the rehearsals. But then finally I got the first put in and boy, it was again, one of those moments where like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this because Lumiere's be our guest is the longest song in Broadway history. <laughs> and Literally it goes on and on, doesn't it? <laughs> exits and entrances and, um, you know, running up and down stairs and directing. Well, what about the, falling down? Like, was your costume uh, where you had to worry about that? Well, the, the candelabra, the base of it, where the shoes are, were about 10 inches of each wide. Okay. So to dance in those made it very cumbersome also. But I never did fall down. <laughs> that hey, was one great. thing, I, you know, I, I, def I definitely... Uh, was thankful that never happened on set. <laughs> the only time, the only thing that ever really happened was when uh, it was probably, I was already well into the show and had the show memorized by heart, but I, it's where Lumiere and Cogsworth go to the beast and they're trying to, you know, explain to him to be kind to uh, Belle and make sure that, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. Uh, and tell her how you feel. And I couldn't remember for some reason for the life of me, tell her how you feel. But Steve Blanchard, who is absolutely amazing, who was in Newsies and he's been in all sorts of stuff since, who was playing the beast. I was like, I said, you, you must, you must. And he goes, 
be nice to her. <laughs> and he, he picked up my cue right away. And I'll <laughs> never, for, never forget that. It was the only time I ever really dropped a line, but, um, <laughs> Well, that's and no great. doubt because I was exhausted from sure, know, both sure. shows. Well, you were a hardworking man at that time. There's no doubt about that. But I really admire your determination, and you wanted to experience, you know, theater as as well as being on a television show. Well, now on to yeah. Amanda Baker, the lovely Amanda Baker. First of all, such a, a nice lady, and we had the most wonderful conversation. When I asked her about working with you, I made a point to ask about that. She said that she always enjoyed her her scenes with you and that she felt that uh, you were very supportive and she felt very comfortable with you. And then she also discussed that dramatic exit of hers, that emotional dramatic exit after the storms. And, and I just wanted to give you a chance to uh, return the favor. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love Amanda. Um, and also I, I know how difficult it is. We had just recently talked about that, you know, taking over a character that was already yes. well-loved and in existence. And of course I felt for her right away because I know how Im impactful the J.R. Babe story was so much so that they had never had really much international success with all my children. And when I stepped in with her, they were able to sell it to France along with uh, half a dozen other countries. And they picked the story right, right from there as if it was a brand new show. So there was a lot of fan backlash, of course, when, um, when she, she came on. And it was a really interesting entrance because it was literally like Babe, the other Babe, was in the scene and she turned around and then in the same scene, very soap opera style, she turned right. back into camera and it was Amanda. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, now, that, now that's some dramatic effect right there. <laughs> that was a very dramatic effect. Um, you know, and people are like, what, what happened? Who is this? Wait a minute. Did I miss something and blink? Uh, what day is this? But <laughs> it was, it was funny. It was interesting, but you know, but you know, that's, that, that was classic soaps. They did. They love to do stuff like that. Sure, I mean, some sure. people would go upstairs and it would come downstairs and it was another person. <laughs> or they'd be a little bit older, you know, a couple years. Or a little bit older. <laughs> if you were sent off to boarding school, you're going to come back a few years older. It's. It's oh, absolutely. You're going to come back. You, you would go to boarding school at eight and you're going to come back 18. <laughs> but you know, Jacob, I've told some people sometimes when they bring that up, I say, well, two things. One, it's usually storyline related. It's because you'll have a, a broader range of storytelling. But but two, Primetime has also done this. It doesn't really get mentioned, but I'll give you an example is Family Ties. You know, one season, you, you know, you have Alex's little brother, and the next season, he's, you know, several years older and talking. So it's right. also Primetime. Right. <laughs> it does happen. Absolutely. Uh, but, but, um, but yeah, but, but Amanda, yeah, she was, you know, she jumped right in head first, and, and she did such a smash job. And, you know, I still don't understand why they, you know, they, they did what they did with her exit. Um, you know, I think, you know, it, it wasn't because it wasn't working. It was a wonderful story and we had a really wonderful working relationship and it was powerful. And the last scene, of course, with the, you know, traumatic exit. And I remember working myself up for those scenes all day long because I was the first time I was ever going to have somebody die and she dies in my arms. And, you know, to really fully invest yourself in something like that, 
you have to go the distance. And I remember after leaving the show that day, how heavy my heart felt, not only because of the scenes, but because of, you know, I felt like I really had lost somebody and she was moving on. And, um, you know, I remember just, it took me probably a good 24 to 36 hours before I started feeling myself again. Very, very emotional scene. And, and that description, I'll tell you, I, I was very moved by that. And, and you're right. Moments of our, of characters can stay with you long after the scenes, especially those. And, and that was such mm-hmm. a, 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 a uh, you know, emotional scene, of course. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thanks for sharing memories of all my children and, and the lovely Amanda Baker. Well, before I get to speak with you about your music and life in Utah, I would like to bring up two things about your return to the Bold and Beautiful, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, I don't mind, yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And that would be a storyline that I found to be courageous and was told in an innovative manner, in my opinion, because it, it really focused instead of on the um, oh this the tabloid type approach, it, it really was dealing with emotions and and why this person made these decisions. And that would be with the Maya storyline, the transgender storyline. Now, okay, there's a twist right there. Uh, but you know what? I have to say that I really found that storyline just so captivating. And it really made me think about a lot of things. What are your thoughts about that time on the show? Um, you know, it was, it was interesting because, you know, that didn't happen for a while. Like, you know, my right. character, Carla, had been on the show for uh, quite a bit of time at that point. And we were just starting to get a nice uptick finally. And of course, they, uh, I had heard that there was going to be this big story, but it was all very hush-hush. I had no idea what it was about. The only person that was privy to it was Carla. and we were in the makeup room and I finally was like, I saw her in the makeup chair and I was like, so what is this like big secret? What's this story? And she's like, ah, well, I can't say, I'm sorry. I can't say. And I felt at this point, because I'd been in daytime for so many years that I had seen, seen it, been there, done that. I had, you know, any story. So I was just jokingly, completely jokingly, but not in a facetious way, but I just said, what are they going to make your character a man? And she goes, I mean, she literally like oh her face dropped and her face said it all. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so we ended up having a conversation in the dressing room and she's like, you can't say anything. Don't tell anybody. And so after they finally had disclosed it to me, I had concerns because we were going to be dealing with such a sensitive subject. Um, and I wanted to make sure that everybody, including the writers, the producers, other actors, myself included, and Carla, that we were all very well educated uh, of, you know, what, you know, what was to be, um, you know, expected, what kind of terms are acceptable, what, you know, I didn't want to be saying something that was going to have backlash from the transgender or the LGBTQ community. Um, And so because, because, because of my input they decided to bring the president of glad in and we all had a a a very you know decisive meeting and talking about you know um 
you know, all the different appropriate things. And he said before he closed, he's like, you know, I, you know, I, as a, you know, as a, the president of GLAD, he's like, I feel like I've been every single one of these gay, lesbian, on and on. And he, he then discloses to us after the meeting that he was born a woman. And I couldn't, I, I mean, I would never be able to tell the difference. It was all so eye-opening for me. I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. And they talked about, you know, not feeling himself. And so anyway, so we were, we were given all sorts of tools. And then the writers went to work and I went to work and Carla went to work. And of course we were afraid because, you know, the transgender community could be like, well, why didn't you just hire a trans actor to, to play the role? So we were still skating on very thin ice. But then, then lo and behold, you know, the reveal happens. And we had such a positive, uh, enormous amount of support that came from fans. We had people from the transgender community reaching out to us saying, I was afraid to be my real self. And now because of this, uh, I'm not afraid to tell my family, my parents, my friends. Um, and, and so there was, there was a really great, um, compassionate time on the show that, that, uh, I, it really affected me. I know it affected Carla a great deal. And, um, and it was, uh, it was a very rewarding story, a story that had never been told in daytime history. And, um, I'm glad that they went there, but I was really, really impressed with how everybody came together and the meeting of the minds and, and how we were able to execute that story. You know, I'm listening to that just wonderful answer you have there, and I'm thinking of how Bill Bell Sr., one of the things that attracted me to his style of writing was that he found the importance of um, including social-themed storylines along with all of the entertaining storylines. And, um, you know, so, and that storyline felt to me like it was just needed, you know, you know, like when you experience something and you go, you know what, I kind of needed that. I don't know. Maybe it was just the timing was, was, was really spot on for that type of storyline. Well, and it, it receives such great praises. You know, we were nominated for two GLAAD awards, the second one, which we won. And, and so that was a, a really nice payoff for the show. Um, and also, we also won that year at the, uh, um, the, the Golden Nymph Awards in, in Monte Carlo, uh, Prince Albert's uh, award show for our storyline. And Carla and I both spoke um, to a great audience of, you know, journalists from all over the world to um, y- you name it. Just so, so many, so many powerful people in the industry worldwide. And it made such a, a great impact, not only domestically, but internationally. Well, Carla gave just an outstanding performance and the chemistry you both had together was, was just so uh, appealing and so obvious and clear. And it just your, both of your performances added so much to the storyline. And, and I just want to say congratulations on achieving so many goals with that storyline and for your efforts of, uh, you know, making sure that this storyline was told in a respectful manner and, and, and so many uh, good things came out of it. And that's just wonderful. Well, I did want to ask, ironically, it's kind of around that time, Jacob, that Maya's, um, you know, uh, storyline was coming to the forefront with you. And that is going back to what we talked about earlier with the resentment and the, and the love hate relationship with, with Eric, but the resentment towards Reg and trying to prove himself was when 
your character finally took over Forrester Creations and then all of a sudden became, I guess you could say, power hungry on a quest for mm-hmm. revenge. And Jacob, I just have to tell you, I, 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 you did an absolutely brilliant job because I have to tell you as a viewer, first of all, I knew this wasn't really the real Rick, that this was coming from other areas, but I have to tell you, I couldn't wait to see more of it. And I was caught off guard by not only the script, like the things your character would say, but just the way you said it. I got to tell you what, I don't know if anybody has told you this before, but it was very J.R. Ewing-like. That's what it made me think of. I actually was tempted to just want to keep seeing more of this, but of course that did change. But I just have to say, what was it like to play Rick during those moments? Well, it was it was really fulfilling because I feel like, um, you know, I was finally a front burner of the show, which was which is always a great feeling when you have a lot of story and a lot of content. It led way into running Forrester, of course, in the way that probably a resentful son would have. Um, and he ended up he ended up becoming a little malicious, a little vindictive, uh, <laughs> yeah. taking advantage of of multiple employees and scenarios, <laughs> firing and hiring. Oh, as oh the passive-aggressive you know, insults. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had some of the best one-liners, uh, Carla and I, because she got, you know, she was right in there with me, Maya, uh, with all the, you know, the insults and, uh, gosh, how, what character? Uh, uh, Windsor Harmonson, Thorne's, or sorry, daughter, Thorne's daughter. Yes, um, yes. We, there, was, there was all those where we were like, oh, you want to you want to make it a force? You got to rub my wife's feet. Yes, I remember <laughs> that. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people were mad, weren't they? They were, I mean, they were just, they had it in for Rick big time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was starting to wonder, like, if your character was going to be shot because it was just getting to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me too. I mean, they just kept, they, they kept writing it. They kept making it go on and on. And were you surprised that it lasted as long as it did? Yes. For two, re- well, for the one main reason is because I think, I think they saw it as just a little quick little arc, but then they saw like what I was doing with it and how funny moments really were even in serious moments. And they really everybody was really in, you know, intrigued with it. And I was that character that everybody started really loving to hate. And so the, they just ran, ran with it. And we, we had the ball. So we ran with it. Well, it sure was a memorable time. Very well done, Jacob. Very well done. Uh, be, well, I, it's time to discuss your music. And I would like to go ahead and give you an opportunity to share anything you might have to say as far as how folks can track down your songs. I've just been enjoying it so much, really enjoying your style. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I mean, music has always been a massive part of my life. I started, you know, obviously when I was young in musical theater and and choir, but I ended up getting signed to a record label in 2001 or 2000, 2001 under Artemis records with uh, the great Danny Goldberg and Daniel glass, who have been responsible from everybody from the Eagles to Jeff Buckley to, I mean, just on and on. They're great, great music producers. Um, and uh, that album, which I spent almost a year putting together writing and, you know, of course, you know, going into the, 
the studio and recording. It, 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 it was set to be released and we just shot the music video and it came out on 9-11-2001. They had life-size cutouts of me in every warehouse music across the country. They had big plans for that first album. And because of 9-11, you know, you know, things happen. And I took it as a, a you know, not a, not personal, but maybe this was not God's will. Maybe it wasn't supposed to be doing music. So I continued to play guitar and I continued to write music and I never stopped, but I also wasn't performing in that way. But I continued to write, you know, as I got married and my wife finally said, you know, stop writing songs for me and start writing songs for yourself. And maybe you should get back in the studio. So I have some friends in Nashville and, and they said, heck yeah, you know, let's get, let's get you in the studio. Let's start writing some stuff together. And so that, that's how that started came coming about. And, you know, flash forward, I've had several singles and, and LP, uh, sorry, EP rather. And, and I've, I've just been really satisfied with, you know, pursuing that part of my career or that passion more or less. I mean, I'm not looking to become internally famous because of music and you know I'm, I'm not saying i'm any gift to music but it sure brightens my day and it makes me very happy and i've had some great response from some of my tunes that i've written and i'm, I'm really proud of those and I've, I've been able to open up in las vegas at uh, the south point casino i've i've opened up at the tropicana in las vegas um if everything settles down i'm supposed to be doing a series of shows in florida this summer so that's very it, nice you know it's yeah, so it, 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 it's a, a passion that is, you know, it's going to continue to feed that, you know, that artistry inside me. And that makes me really happy. And if, you, if anybody's interested in finding my music, of course, I'm on anywhere and everywhere music you can download or stream. So from Spotify to Apple Music to um, Google Play. Of course, you can listen to almost all of them on YouTube. So it, there, it's out there, and if you're interested and so inclined, please do. And please, if you're if you are interested and you are on Spotify, subscribe to my station. Absolutely, I'll be sure to do that myself. And Jacob, uh, I really enjoyed uh, you know hearing the passion in your voice for your music, and I loved how you said you know it's not really it's not about fame for me. It's about the fact it makes me feel good, and hopefully, I'll make others feel good or or think about something. And, and that's just the most refreshing and positive approach to any artistic project. I'm exactly the same way. So I just want to commend you on that. And I do have a final question for you, but I just want to let you know that when I walk my rescue dog later today and over the upcoming weekend, I'm going to be listening to some of your music on my earbuds. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> You're most welcome. And I thought I would ask just, you know, obviously I'm assuming you and family needed a change of environment, the move to Utah. It sounds beautiful. I'm sure I get the feeling that you probably, as far as I know, don't regret that move, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth. But was there any breaking point that you decided that this needed to be done for you? Yeah, uh, I had been in Los Angeles. I'd lived in Los Angeles for uh, almost eight years before moving to New York and then in New York, which I fell in love with. And then of course, all my children took us back to Los Angeles for that short year and a half that it was back, it was still on the air. Uh, and of course I went right to bold and the beautiful. I mean, it was almost seamless, but 
there was, I was raising my, 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 my son and my wife was pregnant with our second child. And I just really was pretty much over the traffic and didn't, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of entitlement that's in Los Angeles and I just didn't want that for my kids anymore. And, you know, as a single guy, it's one thing as a married man, um, I wanted more for my kids. I wanted them to be kids longer. Really. That was really what it came down to. I wanted them to enjoy their childhood and not grow up with every other car being a Ferrari and every other mansion. And I just, I just didn't want that. I didn't want them growing up too quick. So, you know, maybe they'll, they'll grow up resenting me, but I don't think so. And they, they get it. He gets it. We live in a beautiful area. We're surrounded by three ski resorts. Oh, we, we get out in nature. We take hikes, there's mountain biking. There's a beautiful reservoir in the middle of our town where people wakeboard or wake surf or paddleboard. And so we're a very active lifestyle and, uh, and it's, and it's nice. It's nice to be away from all of that. And I can dance in and out of sight of the fire as I choose to. Um, but not to mention there's a thriving film community uh, that exists in Utah and Sundance being, you know, obviously the flagship. And mm-hmm. there's always several movies that are being shot here every year from major motion pictures to Hallmark films, Hallmark Christmas films, uh, Lifetime. Um, and I've done, a, I've done several supporting roles on local product, not local production, but productions out of Los Angeles that are shooting here. And uh, in fact, I'm getting ready to, uh, I just shot a commercial a couple, about a week ago, which is great because there's nothing, absolutely zero happening in the industry at this point, uh, in Los Angeles and the New York markets and come, come July, if everything settles down, I'm shooting a movie in South Carolina. So I'll be out back East, uh, shooting a film out there. And, um, I'm also proud to say that I recently executive produced a, um, a film in, Idaho. It's a period piece. It's a Western. It's a short, but it was uh, very accurate in, as far as look and feel, wardrobe, storyline. And we're looking to potentially make this into a miniseries or maybe even a feature length film. So I'm very excited. You know, my, you know, this is kind of the next phase of, of my career is moving into pro- projects like, you know, this and development and writing. Um, and taking everything that I have absorbed from all these years in, in TV and, and and the work that I've done to to finally manifest some of my own projects. Well, think about what you've already achieved and the people that you've met along the way, the lessons you've learned. I'll tell you what, just thinking of the future, probably it's very exciting for you. It is, and, and I'm always looking forward to it. And it goes back to that work ethic. I just I just can't stop. I you know I want to I want to do it all. And it's, you know, I enjoy every minute of it. Well, I have to tell you that I have had an absolutely wonderful time speaking with you today. I thank you for your generosity. You are so gracious to to spend so much time with me. I totally enjoyed every moment and really a big highlight for me. So thank you. And I hope that you will come back again someday. I will. And it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for all the great questions, and um, I'm so glad to be able to share some of those stories, those, those rare stories, and um, those are really wonderful. I know I'm not the smartest man, 
Girl, I do the best I can Cause I'm a fool Fool for you Never be a millionaire Life looks good from this easy chair Just being a fool Fool for you Nice God every day Send an angel down no, he must have heard my plea Gave you to me Girl, I know it's hard sometimes Putting up with the rhythm and rhymes Of a fool, a fool for you You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in.